I am Ruth Mason, the Edwin S. Cohen uh, Distinguished Professor of Law and Taxation at the University of Virginia. And I'm an affiliated faculty member with the Virginia Center of Tax Law. My co-convener for the workshop is Salida Gunn, who is Professor of Taxation Law at Oxford University and one of the directors of the MSc in Taxation at Oxford University Faculty of Law. The goal of this workshop is to build bridges across academic disciplines by bringing academics together with, bringing tax academics together with non-tax academics. That concept is simple. Celia and I will invite tax academics that we admire to choose a work by a non-tax academic that they admire. Um, and then we invite the author of the work and discuss it here on Zoom. So the best part about us being moderators is that Celia and I got to kick this off, the very first session, with a work that we greatly admire, the Code of Capital, How Law Creates Wealth and Inequality uh, by Katerina Pistor. So now let me introduce the author of our featured piece, Katerina Pistor. Uh, Katerina is the Edwin B. Parker Professor of Comparative Law at Columbia Law School. She is an award-winning writer and legal scholar. She's a lead, leading scholar on numerous topics, including corporate governance, money and finance, the global money system, cryptocurrencies, property rights, and comparative law legal institutions. She has been affiliated with many prestigious institutions of higher learning, including Harvard, Penn, NYU, Frankfurt University, LSE, Oxford, the Max Planck Institute for Foreign and uh, International Law in Hamburg. We are very pleased that you could join us here today. Katarina, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me and for discussing my book in this great um, format. So I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Thanks. We are delighted. Okay, so the very enjoyable task that has fallen to me this morning um, is to put chapter six, which you read, uh, and which um, Celia will be talking about in detail into the broader context of um, Katarina's wonderful book. Um, so her main insight is that prior commentators have missed something crucial to capitalism and the creation of wealth, uh, which is the role of law. Law doesn't just facilitate the production of wealth, uh, for example, by reducing transaction costs. Um, in a very real sense, she argues, law creates wealth and keeps it in the hands of those who have it. Uh, as Pistor puts it, lawyers don't just skim the claim, they make the claim. Uh, Pistor gives many examples of this coding. She starts all the way back uh, with entail in English law which was designed to protect a family's land against predators and also dissolute firstborn sons. Um, she moves on to modern examples from uh, trusts to mortgage-backed securities um, to genetic patents and cryptocurrency. It cannot possibly give uh, do justice to all of the really interesting examples uh, in the book. Get the book if you haven't read it yet. Um, one may wonder, why states agree to providing special privileges uh, for wealth in the law. 
And here, Pister notes that there need not be as rational choice scholars have assumed an overt bargain between elites and government. On the contrary, lawyers can make law directly. Um, they can code the asset itself with the characteristics they want, and they don't need a legislature for that. They may need a court, but sometimes they don't even need that. They can just use a contract. Uh, this may sound great, but think about hybrid debt equity instruments. Now, those instruments are not blessed by any legislature, any one legislature, and usually not even by courts. You simply encode the security with the features that you want it to have, um, and, and, and you choose how that instrument will be governed according to your private goals. Okay, so globalization massively fuels this coding. So today, lawyers pick and choose not just how a single instrument is going to be characterized, but which laws, commercial law writ large, will apply. They do this by picking place in incorporation and taking advantage of conflicts of laws rules. They do it through arbitration clauses and contracts and so on. So law is effectively portable. You apply the law you prefer, and then competition among states ensures that there's always a ready supply of accommodating portable uh, legal regimes. But coding imposes significant risks to the public and fuels dangerous inequality. So Pistor's autopsy of Lehman Brothers, her description of the almost fractal way that the tranches were packaged and repackaged and repackaged again, um, and how you know, private risks taken by banks became public risks should be required reading. It's there in the book. Um, but if, if coding has all of these social costs, what can be done about it? Um, one, um, Pistor says that governments should stop believing the old line about how concessions and special treatment uh, are needed to promote growth. The pie, uh, even if it's growing, isn't shared. Um, and so states should stop making these concessions. So states should reduce the portability of law, and she gives a, a number of ways that that could be done. There's, there's much, much more in the book, obviously, than I can convey here, but I want to pick out a few things that would be most interesting for us as a, a tax audience. Um, so first, you know, th this book is in part a retort to the classical economics narrative that markets allocate assets efficiently to their most productive uh, users, owners. Um, but Katarina, you're, you're pushing back on that. You, you explain that once people have assets, they recode them. They make sure that their ownership is hard to dislodge. And so this fights that narrative that uh, assets are always going to go to their most productive uses. Um, so maybe the pie doesn't get bigger as we've been led to believe. But on the other hand, some legal in, in, innovations, right? Joint stock companies, limited liability that separates ownership and control, these surely contribute to growth. So, you know, the first big question that emerges from your book is, you know, what is, is there a Goldilocks zone for coding? What's the right amount? Um, for tax people, you can think of this as the analogous to the problem of trying to identify 
the line between productive tax competition that keeps rates low and you know, tames Leviathan and unproductive tax, harmful tax competition um, that threatens the social safety net and beggars neighbors. So what's the right amount of freedom? Um, second, your book, your book is not about, that's specifically about tax law, but if we're honest, right, the subtitle of this book easily could have been a biography of a tax lawyer. Okay, we, we tax people, right? You know, for former tax people, now tax academics, we are the coders of whom you speak, right? In the US, we just refer to the tax law as the code. Um, and so, you know, in, in a sense, we're the book's antagonists, right? We engage in socially destructive activity. We deprive public treasuries of tax. We help court law. We arbitrage. We write trusts. Um, your criticism of lawyers, though, struck me as fairly mild, um, considering the social costs that you attribute to us. So you say maybe we can change it to the cost structure of law school so people graduate with less debt. Um, you know, at one point you talk about the, the Apple state aid investigations. Now, I've closely studied that tax plan. Um, I teach it in my class. I'm of two minds about it. So on the one hand, it, it sort of you know, shocks and appalls me. How, how can this be? The income, the, the result is astonishing, right? So no tax on a large fraction of the income of one of history's most successful companies. It's obviously unfair, even if it's perfectly legal. Uh, but I must say, uh, studying the Apple tax plan also fills me with admiration. It's a smart, cool tax plan for all the coding ways that you describe in your book, right? So, you know, tax lawyers don't just raid the world's treasuries for profit, they do it for fun. Okay. Um, and so, obviously, that involves a certain amount of compartmentalization, right? We have to ignore the social costs of our chosen professions. So like, is there a way to get the coders to resist the allure of the cool problem? Can we develop better norms? Um, and then more broadly, like, it, you know, is that where the effort should focus? Um, you advocate incrementalism. Um, I, for one, have had a hard time convincing, you know, this group, people in the tax area, that incremental moves, even when added up, right, amount to something meaningful. You know, do we need something more radical? You know, forget, forget coding. We're never going to stop coding. The tax lawyers are just too smart, right? Um, instead, let's focus our efforts on something bigger. Let's get drastic redistribution through the taxing and spending system. I think, Sui, we'll talk about more about redistribution in a minute. Um, but if incrementalism um, is the way to go, then I want to offer, you know, as an example for the tax people, fiscal fail-safes like hybrid rules or minimum taxes. But, you know, for you, Katerina, as, as a corporate person, you could think about, you know, at the state level, something like the recent statutes passed by California to regulate board diversity on the basis of uh, headquarters uh, rather than incorporation is kind of a, a way for California to reclaim or push back um, against the portability of Delaware law and say, you know, you know, I want to I want to assert regulatory jurisdiction here. Um, and then the last point I want to raise uh, is a little bit subversive, uh, and it's more for the tax folks than uh, for you, Katerina. 
Um, but, you know, so if Katarina is right, okay, if, if she's right, that much more of the of value than we typically appreciate is generated by coding, then that means it's attributable to UK law or US law ported to other jurisdictions or to private law manufactured in whole cloth, right, um, by the coders. Well, what does that say about allocation of tax entitlements and value creation as a metric? Um, even if we said we want to exclude the part of income that's generated through coding um, from, let's say, an allocation formula, um, as we would with perhaps with intangibles and for the same reasons, that we would have to know what part of the income was attributable to coding. But one thing that Katarina's account doesn't try to do is measure how much income or wealth is due to coding versus how much is uh, arises from the more traditional factors of production. And we can argue about what those factors are, okay? Um, so that's just a little reservation that, you know, not everything in Katarina's book, you know, pulsing, you know, all in the direction of uh, reducing inequality. Uh, or, or maybe it's just a not yet another argument, right, that, that uh, value creation can't be the touchstone for allocation for tax. Okay, so there are a ton of exciting ideas in the book, but let me stop there and turn it over to Xili, who will concentrate on chapter six. Well, thank you, Ruth, and hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks uh, especially, Katerina, for joining us for today. Um, so, uh, Katerina's uh, uh, Code of Capital very elegantly features the privatization of law, how capital owners and their lawyers were able to create by and, and for themselves a private legal order, which is not subject to the coercive power of any state as such, and yet, at the same time, uh, make sure that they are able to use the very same coercive powers of states to validate their rights and grant them the power uh, or the powerful legal leverages that the emergence of, of capital uh, actually requires. Um, the, the technique which uh, chapter six forcefully presents is, that, uh, is what Katarina calls uh, picking and choosing. Uh, and under this technique, capital owners are able to opt out of the legal regimes and with the help of their crafty lawyers, opt into a legal regime that they fancy more. This is the case for a variety of legal areas, of course, uh, uh, corporate governance, contracts, even some areas of, of property uh, law, where some uh, legal areas, for instance, uh, intellectual property or bankruptcy, uh, somehow prove stickier than, than others. And it is interesting to, to think why some areas are more strongly connected to state sovereignty than others, uh, but I'm afraid we don't have to, to, the time to discuss that today, maybe in the Q&A. Uh, the, the specific methods vary and range from choice of law rules and bilateral investment treaties to arbitration bodies uh, and compatible legal standards produced by private actors. But the bottom line is the same. Capital owners end up having it their way. They are able to put capital to work on a global scale under legal regimes that work to serve their interests, backed by states, but not subject to their constraints. Interestingly, uh, Katarina emphasizes the fact that capital thrives on uniformity as the driving force uh, of this privatization. 
gaps and frictions between jurisdictions do not serve capital owners well as they create ent uh, entry barriers and transaction costs that curb their profits. Having states harmonize their rules, which might seem like the textbook answer in, in this case, proves too complicated and too costly and run the, the risk of states actually having a, uh, an actual say on how their businesses operate. And thus, hence, um, capital owners resorted to privatization of law. Such privatization allows them to overcome the gaps between countries by opting out of their jurisdictions and creating a unified legal standard. It is a do-it-yourself legal regime by which the network of global capital operates. Now moving to tax, um, in the tax area, uh, taxpayers opting out of the jurisdictions is uh, of course a familiar phenomenon. Uh, but whereas the code of capital needs to be unified in the tax area, capital owners thrive on the gaps and frictions between taxing jurisdictions, allowing their profits to shift through the cracks to infamous uh, tax havens. As is probably well known uh, to, to a tax audience like this, uh, the conditions that can trigger the application or non-application of the international tax laws is in different jurisdictions vary, and they vary widely. Uh, differing residency rules, a wide assortment of source rules, conflicting rules for allowing uh, deductions, uh, differing tax and withholding rates, and a vast number of tax treaties between different jurisdictions. And sophisticated and well-advised taxpayers can assemble these uh, diverse components into a tax regime that is favorable to them and does not necessarily overlap with any of the regimes governing their other affairs. Importantly, constructing such a tax package may or may not involve actually relocating resources, for tax matters are well known for the paper-shifting style of complex planning they involve. Tax planners employ a host of techniques to de facto opt out of the jurisdiction without actually moving their client's residency or activities. Some of these techniques have made the headlines. Subsidiaries incorporated in tax havens to defer taxation to when the profits are repatriated, if at all. Uh, the use of tax treaties to siphon off income to and from low tax jurisdictions, thereby avoiding taxation at source transfer pricing to allocate revenues uh, to low-tax jurisdiction, and so on and so forth. Hence, tax planners use the rules of states to benefit their clients by offering them tailor-made solutions. And the success of the craft of tax planning leads to the loss of states' ability to collect enough taxes to pay for the public goods that they need to provide. This shift of power from states to tax planners and their clients indicates a dramatic change in the role of the state and a new formulation of the interaction between states and their constituents. The sovereign states, once defined by its coercive powers and control over its citizenry and territory, must now struggle to prevent its constituents from opting out of the system. The ability to opt out of the legal system has turned the decision-making process on its head. The state no longer makes unilateral compulsory demands on its subjects in order to promote the collective goals of a given group of constituents, but rather its constituents are the ones making the choice among the rules of various jurisdictions. In the extreme version, the power of the constituents to choose changes the legal system from a mandatory regime to a regime that is basically elective. 
or to be more precise, elected for some. When the choice is at the hands of uh, capital owners, states increasingly resemble uh, firms competing for clients on the market. This marketization of the state constituent interaction is not insignificant. It commodifies the interaction between states and their constituents and thus highlighting the market scale of valuation over uh, other scales uh, such as uh, belongingness, solidarity, or culture. It tends to favor exit over voice and loyalty and thus transform processes of democratic participation. And a point I find particularly troubling, it significantly limits the ability of the state to do justice and thus undermines one of the key roles of the state under the social contract and the reason why we grant it uh, with coercive powers to start with, namely promoting justice. The ability of taxpayers to opt out of the system exacerbates inequality. Tax avoidance, which undermines state's ability to collect taxes, is more accessible to capital owners who are also the ones who are, paying the, who are on the paying side of redistribution. And tax, as us tax lawyers proudly keep reminding ourselves, is pr prominently presented by economists and political philosophers alike as the arena for distributive justice. But I argue there is great importance in discussing distributive justice in the context of the non-tax rules on which the code of capital focuses. This last proposition runs against current orthodoxy. The conventional view sees tax law as the key instrument for distributive justice. And there are many arguments which support uh, this orthodoxy. The most sophisticated and well-known one is by Harvard professors Louis Kapler and Steve Chavelle, who famously argued that redistribution should be facilitated only through the tax and welfare system as tax is more efficient in promoting this task. First step, uh, claim Kapler and Chavelle, we grow the collective welfare pie by designing the most efficient legal rules. And then we apply tax rules to redistribute the extra gains among the constituents. Now this division of labor be between tax and non-tax rules ensures not only the most efficient system, but also that the state will maximize the resources being redistributed. The, the reason they give uh, uh, for why legal rules are, are not as efficient as tax rules in promoting distributive justice is what they call double distortion or the double distortion problem. Now consider Kaplan and Chabelle's example of yacht owners. They ask what tort damages rule should apply to accidents in which yacht owners exclusively uh, owned by the rich collide with small fishing boats owned by poor fishermen. And more specifically, whether damages should be raised somewhat in order to have the fishermen receive higher payments from the rich yacht owners. Kaplan and Chavelle answered this question in the negative, since redistribution would be more efficiently achieved through income tax rules. And the reason, and I quote, when inefficient legal rules are employed by redistributing uh, sorry, I'm employed to redistribute income, there is not only a distortion of work effort, there is also the cost directly associated with the inefficiency of the legal rule, such as insufficient or excessive uh, precaution to avoid accidents. This argument, while convincing under a closed economy, loses power in open economies. 
when the choices available for taxpayers dramatically increase. Kaplan and Chauvel assume two possible reactions, work less and or take extra precaution. In open economies, there are, there's another alternative. Instead of subjecting the state's rules and rates, um, or instead of, of subjecting to the, the, the state's rule of rates, one could opt for the rules and rates of other jurisdictions. Tax planners help their clients to opt out of the tax jurisdiction. Katerina's coders help them opt out of the non-tax jurisdictions. Hence, in open economies, in order to assess which area of law, tax or non-tax, is the best place to redistribute, we must ask which is less elastic, less amenable to manipulation, and therefore can more plausible be used as means of redistribution. In other words, the higher the costs of opting out from a certain rule, the greater the distributive, quote unquote, cost the state can impose by using that rule. Thus, assuming a state seeks to redistribute income, it would be more viable to do so through the rules, um, through, oh, sorry, through rules that are costlier to avoid. Now, land law, for example, may, may provide us a, a good uh, example for such stickier uh, laws. If the demand for uh, real estate in Manhattan is sufficiently high, the zoning board of uh, New York City should be able to apply the coercive power that traditionally comes with sovereignty. These type of rules, the ones that capital owners tend not to opt out from, are the more hopeful instrument for redistribution in the age of globalization. As it turns out, tax laws are highly susceptible to jurisdiction shopping, as evidenced by the erosion of national tax bases and states' growing inability to collect taxes. This means that in our transnational era, tax laws can no longer be regarded as the only suitable arena for pursuing distributive justice. Indeed, other legal regimes may be, as I have just uh, mentioned, a better venue for justice. This is where the code of capital becomes super important. Katerina is calling on states to gain back the sovereign powers in precisely these areas by rolling back the wheel on the ability of capital owners to opt out of the system. If Katerina's call is heard, private law could support distributive justice. Property rules, rules of contract, bankruptcy rules, etc., could be used to reduce or at least not to expand inequality. This may be the best hope for distributive justice in a global world, pre-distribution rather than redistribution. In any event, the reason why Wiz and I thought the Code of Capital would be such an important uh, text to kick off our series is exactly because it so neatly demonstrates the importance of lawyers in different areas of law working together. A strict division of labor between tax and non-tax rules, while convenient, is not necessarily the right thing to do. So thank you, and let us open up the floor for questions. So shall I shall I respond first before we? Oh um, yeah, sorry, I'm sorry. 
first of all, Sorry. thank you both. <laughs> thank you both to you, um, Zilli, and to Ruth for their wonderful questions. And I will try to be brief so we can hear other questions as well. But let me just pick up a couple of really important things that have come up. Um, first, I think Ruth's uh, question is there a sweet spot. You know, how much coding is okay and when it is when is it too much? And I think my, my major impetus for writing the book was first to say, you know, um, the private law is actually the mother of all subsidies. So there is a source of power that is being used differentially by different actors. And I just want this to be acknowledged, right? So it is a form of distribution already when we have differential access to the powers of the state and to different laws to form our relations with one another. It's a form of, of pre-distribution or distribution at the um, at, at the early at the outset. And I think it is important also for political reasons to make this point because you know when you give somebody the goose that lays the golden eggs, um, you can try to snatch a golden egg awake later on. It's, that's basically what taxation does in my mind, right? But I'd rather give a chicken rather than a goose, right? So the question is how much, you know, how much in principle do you think that private actors should have leeway in picking and choosing the laws by which they wish to be governed when everybody else is held to other rules? Because they do want the rules, right? There is an agreement that we all want to have rules. And when you get exemptions, you still want that everybody else plays by the by, by, by the other rules. And when you have greater power to manipulate this, you still are making the assumption that everybody else plays by these rules. So I think as a matter of, um, of justice, of democracy, um, uh, and of course, of the distribution of wealth, this is really an important point. Um, my starting point for the book was quite frankly also Piketty's book with whom I've had a couple, a couple of discussions about, you know, taxation versus coding. Um, and his argument that the rate of return for capital has been higher than economic growth. Nobody's against economic growth. It's just not clear that we have to give some these legal steroids uh, while where, where, where others don't have that. Now, how to do this in practice, of course, is always the big um, the big question. Um, second point that Ruth raised was uh, the role of the lawyers, and I led them away too, uh, too uh, easily. Um, yes, probably that's right. Um, I think on the contrary, however, many people are feeling a little bit um, uneasy. Many lawyers feel a little bit uneasy that I took them on and basically call them the masters of the code. Um, I think I agree with you. They are you know, they, they are ingenious. I'm also full of admiration for what they do in structured finance. It's just, it's just fantastic legal engineering work. And I do, I think, hope also I, sh I share some of this admiration I have for that in the book. And yet I think it's, we have to ask the question for whom it's done. And I agree that what lawyers are lacking, I think lacking in our legal training that we give them and lacking certainly in the work and the entire incentive structure in law firms is a view of the system. Right. I mean, I talked to so many lawyers after 2008 who said, I have no idea what happened. I work with the brightest people in the world and then the system comes crashing down on us. And so I think it's also an obligation we have in law schools to think about um, how to train our students in the broader social impact of their work. Now, I realize that with, you know, billable hours and client recruiting and all the rest of it, it's very hard to transpose this into law firms. But again, we're making one step at a time incrementalism versus radical change. Um, I've sort of come to the conclusion that radical change is does not necessarily always result in radical outcomes, which is why I'm sort of trying to find these soft spots where 
capital has been able to push through and say, well, let's just close these spots and let's make sure that we don't open others at the same time. So we can basically surely, but um, slowly but surely move the um, system in a different direction. Why does radical change not always work? I mean, we've seen sort of, you know, tax rates going up and down. It's part of the political process. And once they, you know, and, and once sort of the political winds shift, we get a very different system. We take subsidies away from the, from the poor. You know, we don't, uh, right now, sort of in the COVID crisis, governments do more, they will do less as soon as they can again under pressure. And so I think that the, 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 our system that we're working with is grounded deeply in these private laws. And so I think we have to get at them as well. Um, Coming to, uh, to to Silly's point, I, I fully agree um, with the basic argument also against Chavel and Kaplow that within a global open system, you can't just say we do redistribution through taxes. I would add again here the political economy argument. I don't think it makes actually sense to allow people to pick and choose the law, even within a given system, and then try to grapple you know, something away, uh, away. Uh, later on. I think we have to think very hard of, you know, how much of this social resource that is law and the means of coercion should be available for purely private gain, especially when it comes at the expense of others. It is a subsidy. And I think I just want to make that point um, uh, uh, very, very clearly. Um, so just a final point on, I think the, you know, the, the, the list of ideas that I have in chapter nine, where I sort of suggest what we, where we can start this strategic incrementalism includes a portability issue that also Ruth uh, raised later on, seat theory versus incorporation theory, right, for corporations. I think it's one of the most important vehicles also for tax um, structuring. And it's an important vehicle for, you know, opting out of co-determination in Germany and opting into uh, different um, legal systems. We have seen this, I ideology that has led courts, including the European Court of Justice, to reinterpret principles of European law to basically suggest that if you are forum shopping, it is a movement of capital of persons. You know, I think you can debate that. And I think we just have to also gain back the ground of saying what is actually true mobility of persons, right? Just that you can, you know, shop for a different legal system or that you're actually moving anything, means of production or something else to get that privilege. And that is, you know, I think um, something that you see in the restatement and uh, the new restatement on choice of law in the, in the US as well, where sort of the seat all of a sudden becomes an, a more important uh, hub again. There will be legal struggles over that. This will go back eventually to the Supreme Court, what California is trying to do, and we're trying to fight over what is actually the internal affair of a corporation. But um, I don't want to go into too many details, but I think portability of law, how much is an important question. So the picking and choosing, um, the ability to opt out of the normal court system, but yet use the court as ex executors of a ruling that arbitration has done, I think is, 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 is another important um, aspect. Um, and then I think something that we might not think as much about from the tax point of view, but something that I've been thinking a lot since publishing the book is how we could harness similar coding strategies for other purposes. Right. So how, you know, what actually, what does the law look like for other organizational forms, right, for co-ops? Um, how much can we incentivize people to um, get together and, and, and maybe own the platform that does Uber or Lyft collectively as cab drivers? And what also tax incentives might do here to promote other forms of organization than, than the ones uh, we currently have? So I think there's a lot of innovative capacity here. Um, but, but, but let me just sort of maybe um, um, stop here, but I do have to make one final point. I think um, the 
question that Silly raised about the level of um, standardization and the level of frictions that give opportunity arbitrage is a really important one as well. What I see as well in the in the financial uh, world as well is that arbitrage is actually a source of creating new wealth and of, um, uh, of, of, of creating gains for clients. But there's always a point where standardization comes in and it, it, I think, dovetails with the question of what law is mandatory and how close it is to the control of the state. So think about the International Swaps and Derivatives Association. They had to standardize the bankruptcy safe harbors. Uh, so something because bankruptcy is, ma is mandatory law, they had to standardize this. But at the same time, they're taking advantage of picking and choosing different laws and, and different structures. Um, on other areas. So I think there's not a, it's not either or, but there is an intersection of mandatory and optional and, and, and depository um, uh, law on the one hand and, and um, the, um, the picking and choosing the arbitrage versus the, the harmonization on the other. So let me stop and just get other questions uh, because I'd love to see what the audience um, has to say. And, and thanks for all of you to, for coming.